Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. I have some very important, wonderful news and announcements for you guys, and and I truly hope that they are uh, exciting for you, uh, the listener as well, because I'm hoping this is a mutually beneficial relationship and and uh, you know you you start the podcast and there's a bunch of you just want to hear the science and get to the show and I get that and I want to build trust with you guys and uh, and so I do genuinely hope that this is exciting for you guys uh, I I know it's my world and it's probably going to be more exciting for me um, than it is for each and every individual out there especially people and different countries that may not be able to take a full advantage of of the news that I'm going to share with you now. And I know that I also tend to over-dissect things sometimes and second-guess things, and I talk too much and over-analyze things. But isn't that the interesting part of the process in this show and my style and what I do? Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. We're all going to have different preferences along the way. I think it's part of the fun. Here's what it is, everybody. East Coast premiere of the Psychonautics documentary. The East Coast premiere is coming up October 4th and 6th. Two chances to see Psychonautics uh, at the Psychedelic Film and Music Festival. And I'm also, I think, going to be performing a good trip there as well. These are the only chances you're going to be able to see the film, I believe, screened on the East Coast. We, we've we looked into, explored uh, screening it in different cities and small venues and stuff, and I'm skeptical. I don't think it's going to happen, to be perfectly honest with you. I think the film is going to be coming out on uh, on platforms. I can't announce just yet on platforms where uh, where you, the listener, will have a easy opportunity and easy access to it next year. But in terms of seeing it on a big screen, I think this is going to be about your only chance, October 4th and 6th and more announcements about a Canada date, and that's and that's about it. Um, and then it'll be on your streaming platform early next year. So uh, if you know anyone in the New York City area, I believe these are probably they're they're small screenings. So I think they're probably going to fill up fast. If I had to guess, then the other big so that's number one. Number two uh, is that my new project, Stand Up Science, a live show part me and my stand-up part here we are podcast so what it is it's me hosting and then i'm i'm going to uh, a typical show will look at me hosting introducing the show doing some of my fun science material with with some of the bigger ideas that i don't normally get to do in say a comedy club to uh you know drunk birthday parties and that sort of thing that just want to have some laughs kind of some of my more thoughtful ideas and intricate concepts that I like brainstorming and sharing with audiences. And then I introduce a local professor uh, or or perhaps even someone on a book tour. And then I introduce a local comedian in town. So the professor giving like a, say, 20-minute kind of TED Talk kind of presentation, but but given the freedom to take a few more chances than maybe they would at something like more like a formal TED talk or or like a formal talk that they would be giving at a institution where 
um, where there's, you know, pe- people making tenure decisions and that sort of thing. So, so hopefully a little more provocative or, or uh, pushing the boundaries or just a little more experimental, something that they, uh, they're passionate about. I, I'm trying to, to give academics the freedom to talk about the things that they're really passionate about and maybe take some chances live in front of an uh, audience of, of uh, regular intellectually curious folks out there in the public. This is like kind of a dream of mine. So I really hope it's going to uh, take off. And then a, a local stand-up doing some of their more cerebral material, 10 to 20 minutes set depending on the act, depending on the night, whether there's kind of a given subject for the night or not. At first, we're just kind of experimenting with it being a showcase kind of show without all the acts necessarily being related to one another. And then a second talk by a local uh, researcher in town, again, another 15, 20 minutes, and then bringing everyone, and I'm kind of riffing in between these acts, and then bringing everyone on stage and making it an interactive thing live with the audience where you, the audience, will get to ask questions and participate in the conversation as well. That section will be a little more like some of the live Here We Are podcasts that we've done. And uh, so it's it's going to be in the description of the show, my my kind of big line and about it, my my clever little selling <laughs> point or whatever is is that it's equal parts ahas and hahas, a little cheesy sounding too, isn't it? Right, but but it really gets across the point of what uh, what the show is about that I, that I want to have. I do want the audience. I want I want you guys to show up and really learn something and have things like like in this podcast where you take away, you go, ah, I've never thought about that before. Those things that kind of change the way that you look at the world, shift your perception in a way, expand your conscious awareness. It's That's the kind of ambitious things that I'm going for live with this show. So it's going to be in Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Madison, all coming up. Madison, October 11th. Minneapolis, October 17th, Chicago, October 18th, um, the Milwaukee date is, oh shoot, I believe it's October 26th, and then uh, after that, I'm I'm trying to secure Des Moines, I have in November, I'm trying to do some stuff northwest, I have November 1st in Portland secured, this is all on shanemoss.com. And I have a deal for you guys. So I, I, and I know this is, you know, you're not all necessarily in one of these cities, but I want to expand and I want to be doing these shows nationwide, like I did with the, the Good Trip Tour. I did 111 cities. So I've found venues, I've experimented with where my audience is in a given, in a given area. And I want to give the opportunity to, um, for all of you to be able to see this eventually. So what I'm doing is if any of these first shows, I'm starting small venues, I'm start, I'm trying to do this in a pragmatic uh, way, so uh, with setting goals that are reachable. So I, I found venues that are about 150 seats. So in any of these cities where I sell out, uh, so Madison, Minneapolis, Chicago, and Milwaukee, uh, in October. One, I will rebook another one 
in an effort to make it a quarterly show. So I'll go back again in January and do another show in that area. And I will find a new city to target and reach out to so that I can expand. And maybe it will be a city that uh, that you live in. So if you can really push, if you know anyone in the area for Madison, Milwaukee, Chicago, Minneapolis, if you can let them know that stand-up science is coming to town and this will be an opportunity for all of us to kind of grow this project. This is a long time in the works. I've been honing my my skills as a host with this podcast and you, many of you have probably heard a quality difference in the show recently where things have been just clicking. The conversations have been more engaging and times funnier and while also still being more thought-provoking and all all of the pieces are kind of coming together and this is the right time to launch this project that I've been working on and working toward for a very long time. So any of these that sell out, they're around 150 seats. I think like Minneapolis is going to be a real easy one and these are all cities where I have a fan base kind of established already so it's not that much of a chance for me and I have uh you know, I'm from Wisconsin, so I have areas around there I can I can visit my family and that sort of thing. So it's not going to be super costly for me to take a chance on these cities. And then same with the Northwest because I live uh, in the Portland area. They're a little safer to start experimenting and make some tweaks along the way and that sort of thing. So any of those shows that I sell out, then I'll expand and I'll start adding more cities. And the goal is to be doing this in a number of cities all over the country. And so I would love if you could help me uh, establish the foundation of that and spread the word as much as you possibly can. I'm just very, very excited for it. And so thanks for your effort. Thanks for listening, even just to this information. And I hope you're excited about it. I'm really, really excited about this new project myself. And I know that some of you are are new listeners to the show and taking 11 minutes of your time uh, before launching into the show uh, might be asking a lot, but these are really exciting opportunities um, for for all of us, I believe. And so um, I hope you're as excited as I am. as I'm clearly excited because I've said that like 10 times now. Uh, You guys are fantastic. I hope you enjoy today's episode, which is, again, just another demonstration of of how well this podcast has been clicking along lately, uh, having just a terrific conversation. So I really hope you enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm excited to be at the moat. You heard me in Sarasota uh, recently, and now I am in Key West talking with senior biologist and specialist in coral reef restoration. Christopher Page is joining me today. Christopher, thank you very much for finding some time for me today. Yeah, hi, great, great to be here. Yeah, so, uh, so tell us about uh, tell us about your work. I got I got a little tour of the facility. A lot of people um, 
uh, a lot of a lot of podcasts. I'm not the only podcast out there that that uh, is interviewing cool researchers, and I think there should be more people doing it and getting science out to the public. Uh, but but a lot of them are are uh, Skype conversations and whatnot, which is nice. You can reach whatever guest you want. But what I love about my podcast is I actually get to go and see what's happening and actually see what you guys are doing and see the facility that you work in. And uh, and so I, I got this cool little tour earlier. And uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your work? Okay, so... I basically started on this journey seven years ago after I got my master's degree, really having an interest in coral reefs and how I could help to restore and protect those coral reefs. So really the past seven years, I've been really lucky to have a job at Moat and to be on the ground floor of a lot of innovative research for coral reef restoration. So corals are in, coral reefs are in need of restoration. They are, um, they are going downhill, especially here in the, in Florida and the Caribbean. So there's a big need to restore living coral reefs as they're basically the infrastructure of a lot of island nations backbone, uh, backgrounds and backbones. Um, they're also very important for, for food fish, for food production, for shoreline protection. Um, but unfortunately, uh, many things kind of synergize and lead to the downfall of many coral reefs and we're trying to trying to reverse that okay um a couple things off the bat uh this this is our first episode on coral reefs i imagine i can't imagine that that we've never touched on the subject before because it's a big everyone's talking about the coral reefs these days and it's a hot and, topic. Uh, yeah yeah it's all over animal planet and documentaries and and uh popping up in the news everywhere but uh just just to make sure that we cover all the 101s and the basics uh, um uh before we expand and get into more of your uh work specifically just just generally uh one why when you talk about coral reefs being um being the back uh the back bone of of uh, a particular ecosystem what why why do you why do you say that what is the importance of um of coral reefs in the area and on the planet and uh and then um second question just um following up you mentioned that they're that they're going downhill um quite a bit uh of of late and uh and, and if you can talk about what what's causing that and um, just expand on that a bit more. Sure. So I think it's appropriate to start with what a coral is. So a lot of people don't really know exactly what a coral is. Um, they think it's a plant. They think it's maybe an animal or a rock, a colored rock. Really, the reality is that it's a combination of all three of those things. It's an animal and it has a symbiosis with an algae and it accretes a mineral, a rock structure to build a coral reef. And really what happens is this, cor this coral, stony coral in particular, are basically the backbone or the keystone organism in a coral reef ecosystem. So they're really the structure and the, the foundational organism that provides 
hunting ground and habitat for, for smaller fishes and large fishes. You can basically look at a coral reef as, as an oasis in a desert in, in tropical oceans. They grow in areas where they've evolved to really take advantage of, of the situation. So where a coral reef grows, it's typically low in nutrients. So low in fertilizer for, uh, plants to grow. So the symbiosis becomes very critical in that the animal produces waste, which often serves as um, food or uh, raw materials for the algae to photosynthesize. That is then a portion of that is translocated to the animal. And it's this pretty tight cycle that allows a lot of production of, of animal tissue and plant tissue without any a ton of input from uh, nutrient sources like ammonia um, and other nitrogenous waste. Um, hmm. So the reality is, is that coral reefs are really perfectly adapted for what they've evolved to, to live in. It's just that we kind of mess it up. Um, so there's many problems um, that coral reefs are facing right now. Um, really, I can go through a laundry list of them. The, the, biggest problem right now, the overarching problem is heat stress. Heat stress and um, our water is becoming more acidic. These are large overarching problems that worldwide coral reefs have problems with. So what happens is during a heat stress event, the, the water temperatures get too high for the symbiosis between the coral animal and the algae uh, symbiont to be stable. And what happens is it stresses it out, um, that symbiosis out, and it becomes not as favorable to have it anymore. So what happens is the coral animal spits out that algae. The algae is brown colored, so it's often a big part of why corals are colored the way they are. And what happens when they spit that algae out, they turn clear white. Mm. Oftentimes the animal is still there, but they've basically lost their their main source of nutrition. Um, and it's because the, the, the heat stress, that symbiosis breaks down during those events. Hmm. And those are the most frequent stressors that we're having in our current day and age. There's a lot of local stressors that take, um, that take a toll on coral reefs. Um, certainly around developed areas, there's a lot of runoff that can lead to excess nutrients which really is what what corals are not evolved to handle. Um, with that excess nutrients, uh, like the, the nitrogen, um, ammonia, nitrite, nitrate, other things take advantage of that, like filamentous algaes or the plants that couldn't grow in that desert-like environment can all of a sudden grow because they're not limited by those um, those building blocks that they need to take, a, take hold. So mm. it often becomes... Competitive, competitively disadvantageous for the coral to grow, but filamentous algae take hold instead. That's that's so interesting that it's I I wouldn't think of uh, of coral growing in a desert ish area and and uh, and you also don't often think of too many nutrients being a problem for uh, most organisms on in in life and and you don't when you see like if you're if you're watching a blue planet or whatever documentary and you see 
you see uh, the Great Barrier Reef or something like that. It doesn't it doesn't look like a desert, no, because it's brimming with life. Whereas you see a you see like a, a, a desert on on planet Earth, and there's a couple cactus and some yeah. some lizards scraping by. And uh, it, so, how is coral springing up in the first place? Like, how did it first start evolving? Well, I'm not sure exactly what what the impetus was, but you like you can really think of like some of the ocean environments that uh, people are familiar with, like kelp forests and coral reefs, is kind of opposites to each other. So, kelp forests like are very high in in nutrients and production from upwelling events, so they oftentimes are not limited by by that nitrogenous waste. Coral reefs, on the other hand, have the opposite problem. They grow in waters that are oligotrophic or very low in nutrients. So the, they sprung up because they could take advantage of that unused niche um, that is that desert-like tropical ocean. So they, they're very good at um, recycling wastes and nutrients Um and what happens is you get a metropolis um, in the place of what used to be a desert because that coral is receiving lots of energy from its algal, ho- algal hosts. In turn, it has energy to, to calcify, to build structure. So you can think of a large coral head as like a skyscraper. There's all sorts of little apartments in that skyscraper. And the apartment here would be the coral polyp. The coral polyp divides, it's a colony, it divides and it increases in structure as it grows older. So each polyp can be considered an apartment in that skyscraper. Um, and that basically leads to habitat for, for other organisms to colonize. So when when you see uh, a documentary or, or when you go and you take a, I think I did a, um, I don't think, I know I did a, uh, um, a, a little uh, snorkeling tour in Hawaii, and saw a bit of coral, or, and and it's usually this kind of large, massive structure. Are they usually uh, just these big structures in one specific place, or are they spread out much? As, as I'm, as I was touring around the lab and seeing, um, seeing you guys trying to help. Uh, make some of this coral reproduce it starts off very small and it sounds like it takes a a pretty long time at least in terms of of uh human lifespan a, a long time to uh to really grow and and expand so is it are they um is much of the coral leaf or much of the coral reef life on earth is it concentrated in these one areas where there's just tons of it in one spot, or is it spread out in little bits? Uh, I mean, it, if you're talking about like the classic tropical coral reef, they occur in a, a very narrow band uh, where temperatures don't reach too low, um, and they traditionally don't reach too high. They're often fringing uh, tropical islands. Um, they occur on certain coasts, depending on whether you have those upwelling events or whether it, not so much. And you'll have like gray areas where a little bit, bit of both happens. Um, so that changes the dynamic on the reef and might change the dynamic of what's present in that area. But as far as like 
what the listeners might view as a traditional coral reef, that stereotypical image, I think a lot of them are like thinking about those large, massive structures creating these, these skyscraper like, um, like edifices. Um, and they will do that over time. Um, so if we're talking very generally, um, and there's a lot of kind of blurring of the lines as you get different coral species. If we're talking very generally, there's two specific uh, types of coral as far as morphology goes. There's branching corals, and then there's massive corals. And in between that, you'll have all sorts of um, plating corals. Wait, sorry, uh, branching coral, and what was the other one? Massive corals. Okay. So they form boulders. They're they're kind of the typical skyscraper looking like mm-hmm. um, colony structures. So, um, and there's, there's kind of at least two different dynamics going on in that most coral species have different life histories. Um, so the branching corals are really good at growing fast. Um, they can grow tens of centimeters per year and really proliferate really fast. Um, the boulder corals or the massive corals take the opposite life strategy. They grow very slowly. They might grow a couple of millimeters to at most a centimeter or two per year. Um, and there's different advantages. Um, there's different advantages to, to each of those, and they're both needed on coral reefs. Um, so the branching coral often grows very fast, um, but they often are very sensitive to uh, to stressful conditions. So they, they basically live and die fast. Um, your massive corals, they grow very slowly, but they are much more resilient to a lot of, a lot of these stressors that may occur naturally on coral reefs or are human induced, like sedimentation or climate change. Hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like I've lived most of my life like a branching coral and <laughs> I, I'm trying to, Having unexpectedly made it to 38 years old, <laughs> trying to, trying to focus more into the bouldering coral, uh, boulder corals uh, are my, <laughs> my lane of the road. <laughs> yeah. So one, this might be a very silly question, but it won't be the first one that I've asked on the podcast. Um, when, when people, uh, when, when you do, uh, so, so most coral isn't necessarily the, the, uh, stereotypical, coral that uh that is in like the tourist hot spots or whatever but when you go to those spots they say don't touch the coral is 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 that like really one of the is that a, a big issue in some of these areas is that uh is is tourism in general because you you talked about um uh temperature and i imagine global warming is playing an uh, enormous is. uh issue how, how big of it is just uh it's just humans swimming around for fun touching these things how much damage does that do i mean it's certainly a problem so it's kind of a double-edged sword in that tourism is great for reefs because it provides um monetary incentive to protect them the tourism dollars that are coming in Mm -hmm. um make people want to be stewards of those areas rather than to just destroy them because it's part of their livelihood in the florida keys really the economy's backbone are coral reefs like it attracts a lot of fishermen whether they know it or not 
like a lot of the organisms that come from coral reefs are things that people are very interested because they're delicious or mm -hmm. <laughs> like catching things. Um, so coral is fragile though. So you have to watch, you can't touch it. Like oftentimes there's kind of two, two sides of that coin is that the branching corals are very fragile. If you touch it, you oftentimes snap it and break it off. Um, well, that coral can recover from that. It is an energy expenditure that it does not have to do with something else, like to grow, uh, grow more or to resist stressful environments. Um, and the same with boulder corals. They're, they're fragile. You're not necessarily going to break it when you touch them, but they exude a mucus coating and you're going to disrupt that mucus coating and stress it out. Like it might be little stressors like a foot here or a finger there, but these things are going through a lot. Like there's a lot of stress that they're dealing with on a daily basis, natural and human induced. Hmm. So, Let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, not a little bit. Let's talk a lot about your kind of specific work here, your restoration and some of the, um, uh, a lot of sort of reproductive efforts and, and research that you're, you're doing here as well, trying to regrow new coral. It, it sounded, uh, uh, very exciting. It's, it's, uh, it seems like a. It seems very promising. Can you talk a little? Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. So it all it kind of all comes back to um, the need for coral reefs. So we need coral reefs for economic gain, for like all those things that I just said, like wave uh, action protection. We had Hurricane Irma come through here last year. And if we didn't have a coral reef protecting us, the waves would have been a lot higher. This building mm -hmm. might not have been here because of it. Um, so they're extremely important for economic reasons, for protection reasons, um, for even recreation reasons. Um, so there's a big incentive to try and save these, um, these ecosystems because they, they grow slowly um, and they're, they're vitally important. So when we're talking about coral reefs, it helps to come back to that very simplified version of um, corals. So there's Potentially, there's branching corals and then there's massive corals. Um, and they both have different niches, um, that help provide habitat and hunting ground for these organisms that call coral reefs home. So again, we're, we're talking that the need for restoration is extremely evident. I mean, certainly we've seen on the news all these mass bleaching events that are mm -hmm. happening, happening year after year. They're becoming longer, they're becoming more frequent in nature, and there's less time in between them. So what's happening is these these coral organisms that get stressed out by that heat, that high heat, are not having enough time to recover and adapt to those heat stress uh, heat stress events. So what happens is you you lose a lot of coral cover. Um, the Caribbean is a poster child for, for losing a lot of coral cover. Like we're down to maybe 8% 8 is good coral cover. Um, and you need that good coral cover to build the coral reef, to keep building it, to keep providing habitat for those organisms that call that home. Um, and when people, cause often you'll, you'll hear, uh, some people 
usually aren't super into science talk about well hasn't hasn't there always been these temperature fluctuations throughout the history of the earth and there there has been but they typically happened over a very very long period of time and and cor- something like coral probably had a much better chance of adapting to those slower mm. changes than than the kind of extreme changes that we're seeing now yeah yeah, so that's really the the crux of the matter is that corals do not have enough time to adapt to these higher temperature environments that are occurring much more regularly um and with less space in between. Um so there is a great need for coral reef restoration. And we're talking about coral reef restoration. It's really within the past 10 to maybe 15 years, there's been a an effort to try and actively restore live coral cover onto coral reefs. Um, and that was a big paradigm shift in coral restoration. Usually they just kind of left artificial structures out there and allowed corals to reseed those areas. What we're seeing is that's not happening in a lot of locations. So the active coral restoration is what really I'm focused on and what many of the world's coral reef managers are are looking into. So if we're looking at how this has been done in the past, is that most of them are focusing on that that one side of the coin, the branching corals, because they they are easy to work with. They grow fast. You can break a small piece of that colony off, tie it to something or mount it to something. And in a year, you could have something the size of a softball or a basketball, depending on those species. So, and can I just stop you for just for a second? For and uh, pardon me if I'm making you repeat something. Um, but when you talk about the branching and the bouldering coral, what is the um, what is the difference in the environment that is that is making um, one work in a given environment and work better in another environment? They often co-occur, but there's okay. different organisms, like there's different environments that promote one or the other. Uh, a lot of times it's wave action or sedimentation, um, and it's very plastic in between. Like if you have higher wave action and you have, ma- you have massive corals occur there, but they might change morphology a little bit. They might start plating a little bit more rather than building. Plating? Yeah. So they might, their growth form might change a little bit. Mm-hmm. They might rather than hug the bot well i think the opposite would be true if in high wave energy they would more likely mound and secure themselves to the substrate they're growing on in low wave energy some species have this plastic ability where they can change that growth form from a boulder to maybe like a lettuce leaf looking organism Mm -hmm. so they co-occur uh they're very adaptable and they mix um, mix with each other. There are certain areas where you'll find more staghorn or more, more branching corals than massive corals. Um, so it's kind of a continuum. Hmm. So, uh, so back to the, the history of restoration, you, you were where I, where I interrupted, you were talking about the, the branching, traditionally the branching coral has been because it's got the, the faster reproduction. Yeah. So really for 10 to, about 10 to 12 years, people have focused just on those species for the most part. There's been a couple dabblings in other, other growth forms, but they're just so easy to propagate 
and conditions are still good for them to grow in many parts of the year and some like sometimes they're not affected by bleaching so you can replace a lot of coral reef by growing branching corals really fast um the problem is that it it tends to be a a replaceable endeavor so if you have a bleaching event a stressful heat condition event you could lose everything that you planted um last year on a certain certain reef the biology of that organism is is just as they i said they they live fast um and die fast um because th- they're very sensitive. they're the real gangsters of the, the <laughs> coral <laughs> population they 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 will respond to stress a lot faster mm-hmm. and they will recover from that stress a lot slower if at all so a lot of times they they just die um if the mm. stress event is too high so um this allows us to to replace a lot of coral cover pretty fast but it's really not paying attention to what we need for coral reefs to survive in the future. Um, I mean, certainly we can take the approach of maybe a management uh, approach where we just replace that crop of corals every year, but that is very expensive, or every time we have a bleaching event, that's very expensive, and it's unclear on how how much that would benefit the ecosystem. Um so really our work at Moat Marine Laboratory has been to build a toolkit for restoration that basically um brings resilience as the main focus. Hmm. Um so we're not looking to just replace what has been lost. We're looking to to replace and build resilience in that ecosystem knowing that we don't know when these these warming conditions are going to end. Certainly, there has to be a lot of work on our part to to reduce our footprint. So we're really kind of focused on giving Mother Nature a leg up and promoting resilience on reefs. And then, like I said, just replacing that that coral reef that died the year before. So there's really two main avenues that we're exploring to do that and have been extreme game changers for the world of coral reef restoration. So one is that we're building resilience by growing species that have been traditionally thought impossible to do at scale. So those are the massive corals. We talked about how they grow slowly, um, maybe a millimeter to a centimeter to a year, and that, for the most part, leaves them out of the conversation of large-scale restoration, or so we thought. Um, so what we've been doing here at, at Moat Marine Laboratory is pushing the bounds, trying to get that slow-growing coral to grow as fast as it can so that we can replicate it and produce thousands of coral outplants that are traditionally more resilient to this, this more, the, the most relevant st- worldwide stressor there is, the, the heat stress. Um, so we talked about like the boulder, the boulder corals or the massive corals having this, this slower life history where they grow slower. Um, but the trade-off is to that is that they are much more resilient to a lot of stressors that are on coral reefs, heat stress being the one that we're, we're really concerned about right now. Um, so we've basically developed a way to 
propagate those corals in mass quantities to take advantage of that natural resilience with that um, that coral type or that coral growth form. Um, certainly there's there's nuances involved, like not all of them are going to be super game-changing winners, but there certainly are a lot of species that check all the boxes of what you need on coral reefs. They are reef builders. Um, they build a lot of structure. Um, they can be kind of tricked into growing fast. Um, so they can provide a lot of habitat on coral reefs, but they're also resilient to heat stress um, mm. and other other stressors. Um, so through a process we call microfragmentation, we've been able to tap into... Um, to the the production potential that is inherent in the biology of that organism. Um, so what a microfragment is, is basically a small fragment of a larger colony. So we talked about how corals are, are for the most part, colonial. What happens if you, is if you can take a small section of that colony, give it the right conditions, it will eventually grow into another colony. So it's not not very similar to us like you couldn't take our arm and put it on something and allow another human to grow mm. but corals have that innate ability most most species so what happens is i term it hacking biology like we're looking to give the coral what it needs to allow its its biology to take over so what happens is we'll cut the the coral very small this kind of, it seems to induce a growth response or a wound healing response. Um, but we'll also mount it flush to a very clean surface area. Um, like I said, flush to that surface area so that it can grow out flat, um, oriented towards the, the sunlight. Um, and what happens is it grows a lot faster than, than it would in nature because in nature they usually don't have a lot of flat surface area to grow on so they tend to boulder up um, and this takes a lot of energy and they they expand over ground much slower mm -hmm. if they just have to produce a lot of tissue and maybe a little bit of a little bit of the skeleton to support their polyps they race for the the edges of that flat surface area so add that to the fact that we're cutting small fragments. We don't need a lot of broodstock colonies to do that. Uh, obviously, we want to diversify genetics, so we look for lots of individuals to do this with. But the amount of broodstock that you need to scale up thousands or tens of thousands of fragments and grow them to a size where you're comfortable planting them on the reef is greatly reduced. Um, so they grow many times faster than they would grow in the field. Hmm. Um, and we are working on, well, we're just in the final wrap-ups of getting a, uh, a scientific paper approved in ecological engineering that details our first plantings with boulder corals and how that micro-fragmenting process really helps expedite restoration. Hmm. So this is, uh, I mean, this is, this is pretty exciting and it seems like, uh, uh, it, it seems like a, uh, solution with a lot of potential. Humans have been, 
um, doing this with all sorts of things for a long time. As much as uh, you know, we leave a footprint behind, and we we often it takes us a while to become mindful of of some of uh, the harm that we're creating. We we are also, I mean, we've done this with livestock and domesticated animals that we've able, been able to shape in kind of ways to suit our needs or change the the habitat or or crops or i mean mm. you can have a marijuana strains that one's good for first person shooter another one's good for playing nba <laughs> uh to 4k or whatever i don't play video games <laughs> um <laughs> but but uh but we we've we have a history of kind of altering things a little bit. Is it, is it possible that we're, we're going to create some sort of super coral that is more resilient if you're, if you're just kind of tweaking these, uh, finding the traits that you're wanting to tease out, which, uh, in this case would, would mostly be resilience to high temperatures, um, creating a, a, a coral that really, uh, thrives and and does really well in these in these higher expected temperatures that that we're predicting for mm-hmm. fifty a hundred years from now. So I think that's kind of a good segue to like the second side of building resilience in coral reef restoration is that that first aspect is building resilience with species that are already like doing what those species do. Like so, massive corals are almost categorically more resistant to high temperature stress than branching corals. Um, and they're more resilient to many other stressors too. Um, so it makes sense to try and work with those as much as you can to try and overcome those hurdles and bottlenecks for production. The other side of the coin is that what you had just said, we're looking for strains or genotypes that are more resistant to, um, to these natural stress events. And, so we want to bring the genetic component into it. So right now, if we're, we're just kind of focusing on re- restoration as we've discussed it so far, we're focusing on just asexual propagation, basically cloning a colony that it already exists on a coral reef. Corals have a great life history to allow mass propagation of new individuals from the same genotype through asexual reproduction but they also have to have have sex. Um, mm-hmm. So that's needed because... Is, is coral sex just as sexy as I'm picturing it in my head? As <laughs> I mean, there's, there's not very much foreplay. <laughs> it's just corals just <laughs> casting things into the water column. Sure. <laughs> the money shot. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, the genetic component of things is really, really important. We cannot just keep propagating the same individual over and over again, despite whether it's resilient to a certain stressor or not. We want to produce resilience to multiple stressors. We want to build resilience in less, um, in less tolerant, stress tolerant, um, species, because ultimately, as I said, we need both of them. Like, Mm -hmm the branching corals serve as like hunt habitat for small fishes. So the big fishes can't eat them. The boulder corals, especially if they're very large in size, serve as these, these habitat and hunting grounds for larger fish, Mm -hmm. um, and invertebrates. Um, so 
talking about the, the genetic component, um, in a perfect world, in with any restoration um, project, be it like trees or grass or whatever, you want to you want to diversify the number of individuals. If you just plant a monoculture of things, they're going to be susceptible to the same stressors. Even though you have ten thousand of those individuals, they are going to follow genotypic lines in a lot of cases towards stress so we want to this is what happened in the potato famine there's one strain that was exceptionally popular and so they only planted that one strain and then something came in that that uh some disease or i forget exactly what it was that uh that loved this strain and did very well and in it and destroyed the whole thing created all sorts of problems because they hadn't kind of hedged their genetic bets and and created diversity within the system. Yeah, I mean, you can look at, like, bananas as well. Um, So bananas are usually one strain, like the Cavendish banana is pretty standard in many parts of certainly the states, most of the states in the world, but it's just one strain. Um, So that does not build ecological resilience by just planting that one strain. We want to build, we want to plant other individuals, like other genetically distinct individuals. So that is where the trouble comes in. Like there is trouble in that boulder corals grow very slowly. That was a hurdle to overcome. But with sexual reproduction, um, it has pluses and minuses. But so far, the minuses uh, before us, the minuses have outweighed the pluses. Mm -hmm. So the pluses are that when corals spawn, they release and, and my my dumb sex jokes aside can you walk us through how coral does uh spawn because it seems it does seem very interesting i got a little i got a, a brief run through before yeah. the podcast so corals they reproduce asexually by fragmentation and sexually by casting eggs and sperm into the water column those eggs and sperm fertilize and they will form the starts of a new coral colony but what happens is this this phenomenon is different depending on where you are in the world but it can be highly predictable in that a lot of times it depends on the phase of the moon Um, so you can predict spawning every year in a lot of species depending on the water temperatures and how many days after the full moon some it's the new moon have have gone by so we've got it what's happening is it the light uh, is it there's some gravity I mean, situation happening i certainly don't know exactly what's going on it seems like the the light of the moon the water temperature even the wave action kind of play a role in triggering corals to certainly from the same species synchronously release eggs and sperm so that they can fertilize mm-hmm. um, in different parts of the world multiple species will go in in close proximity to another. Um, but that, that synchronicity is very important. Like if a coral goes ahead of time, it's very difficult for, for fertilization to happen. Um, and that genetic diversity to, to be, um, to be constructed. So corals need to spawn at the same time. They use cues from, Again, the temperature and the moon and even maybe the wave action. And there's certainly probably other factors. Um, but So romantic. <laughs> the moon's got to be right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, I mean, like, there's there's a lot. I've been on a lot of these uh, these uh, projects that are trying to collect coral spawn for for restoration work or scientific experimentation, and there's a little bit of superstition involved, <laughs> and, like, in trying to predict these things. Everybody's got their own like little like set of events that they need to do before they go out on the reef to get them to spawn. So you guys are wearing your like lucky poncho and whatever else <laughs> yeah that's it, uh yeah you don't uh, this is that's interesting you don't normally see a whole lot of superstition know, amongst, right? the, amongst the <laughs> academia and the research communities but i have a, a professor and a mentor of mine that swears by a certain brand of glow stick that has to be tied to your scuba tank like when you're doing this work out in the field because so this is the other part is that this stuff usually for most stony coral species happens late at night so um you're you're swimming on pitch black reefs so you need flashlights and glow sticks to to mark who you are and where the colonies are so it's a pretty crazy kind of atmosphere Mm. um and again they they don't make it easy in that most species go 10 o'clock plus so the species that I really am interested in goes at like one or two in the morning. <laughs> so you have to you have to kind of get on their timetable to, to do this stuff. So go so they release uh sperm and eggs in, in like packets or something that Yeah. Float to so the there's different life strategies towards that particular like towards sexual reproduction. Some species are hermaphroditic so they will release eggs and sperm in little packets Uh, those packets will break up on the surface and hopefully they'll mix with other genotypes some species are one sex like some some species individual colonies are only one sex so they'll release sperm or they'll release eggs and the goal is to get them to mix together so synchronicity is involved in quantity like so if you don't have enough spawn going you're not very likely to get fertilization and this is kind of what's happening on our reefs with some of um our very sensitive uh branching corals there's not enough genotypes and not enough like density of spawn to promote fertilization so you often don't get fertilization and what, what we really can tell is that we haven't seen any new juvenile coral colonies showing up a lot of times. There's kind of um, speculation that some are, but because corals can fragment and into little pieces, you don't know if a little colony on a reef is because of sexual reproduction or asexual reproduction. Really suffice it to say is that if this process is working normally, you're going to get thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands possibly of, of gametes that are released into the water column. If that process is working uh, well, those, um, those gametes will mix and fertilize each other. And each one of those fertilized embryos is going to be a new genetic individual. So that's why it's super attractive to coral restoration is that you can potentially produce thousands tens of thousands even hundreds of thousands of new genetic individuals um in a very short period of time Mm. the big catch with that is that they are extremely sensitive um so you can 
what what happens is let me kind of continue the story um when corals uh release eggs and sperm they fertilize uh in the water column they then develop into a swimming larvae so many people don't think of a coral as swimming but in that first life stage they swim around and basically look and look for something that exhibits characteristic of a reef like once they find that special spot they will settle down and metamorphose into the first coral polyp of a new coral colony um so um we have evidence that this is happening that corals are settling on coral reef substrate and metamorphosing into polyps but certainly depending on the species you get very very little survival maybe even six months out um especially the the most important reef builders in the caribbean are terrible at recruiting we call it recruiting to the reef a coral a new coral baby is we refer to as a coral recruit um so they're very um very sensitive so they often die off somewhere in that process and so what happens is you have a broken system like you're not getting this natural receding of reefs on very degraded areas um there's certainly parts there's certain certainly places where that's still happening there's certainly species where that's still happening but by and large in the caribbean there's a big problem with not getting new sexual recruits that grow up into new colonies of diverse genetic background mm. so again to emphasize the big hitch is that those newly settled coral recruits are very sensitive i joke sometimes that if you look at them wrong they die mm-hmm. um just change subtle changes in water quality overgrowth by algae predation all these things can whittle things down really quickly so they might have started with hundreds of thousands of settled coral recruits but in most projects like you're hard pressed to find one individual that survived in a lot of cases and is it harder is it harder for them um to uh find um you know uh, other compatible coral to uh to mix with is it getting harder as you talk about kind of density of spawn being important is it is it this kind of cyclical problem where whereas some coral dies then it's kind of also getting further apart and then it's getting harder for mm-hmm. the two different groups to so it's like it's a, like a whittling down effect like mm-hmm. when you have colonies that can spawn close to each other you're going to have that that density and that diversity in genetics but as you lose coral colonies they get like you said they get farther apart and the density decreases and the genetic diversity decreases so and it's it's tricky sometimes sometimes you can think that there is a ton of coral that could fertilize but they could all be the same genetic individual the same genet especially this is a big problem with the branching corals because they are highly fragmentable like they break easily it's very ingrained in their life history to break during storms or wave action and cement itself very quickly to to basically neighboring reef what you have is big stands lots of colonies of branching corals but they can really be one genetic individual a lot of times mm. so you're 
going back to you sitting in a boat at like uh, one or two a.m. now, and you're just kind of twiddling your thought. So you're you're waiting for these packets or whatever to rise to the surface. So you're just sitting there looking at the surface of the water. Intent. I mean, how much how much time do you have once? Once this process starts to, I, I mean, if you if you fall asleep for <laughs> you could thirty listen. minutes and you wake up, you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. So the process, kind of in a nutshell, start to finish, is that you get out there early enough so that you still have some light to basically map out, like set the area, like so maybe set your collection vessels. So in that in this case, it's these tents that we suspend over colonies they funnel the gametes into a collection cup and we collect the collection cup so you want to get out there and at least get an idea of your site before before the event happens um so when that happens it's usually at it can be at midnight or one or two in the morning, depending on that species, but you're basically waiting until that event occurs. And when the event is starting to occur, occur, many species will do what's called setting, where they'll basically present the gamete bundle or the gamete um, on the surface of their colony um, before they release it. So you'll see that with egg sperm bundles and eggs in general. Um, so you got about, depending on the species, one to 10 or 20 minutes before they start releasing. So you got to be ready then. You got to have your, your tents over those colonies collecting the gametes. Like you're not collecting all of them. You want to collect only a portion of them and mix the gene, like get as much genetic diversity as you can when it comes to restoration. So for experimentation, there's a lot of work looking at, um, specific crosses so specific parentages like especially when we're talking about looking for resilient strains um and so the reality is is that this this idea of resilient strains is not a nebulous term like it's rooted in reality because when you look at coral restoration projects even in the species that are more sensitive like they they have a lot of them have individuals that outperform the other ones and it's usually on a genetic basis and a lot of times you can have like really the real test for restoration work specifically is to see how well it does throughout the year in different locations under different conditions um and a lot of times you you will bring out these winning genotypes um so you got to be careful with that because if you're just focusing on sex asexual reproduction you're just going to be tempted to plant that one genotype all over the place um so with sexual reproduction we can increase the number of winners that we have uh, we can possibly breed winners with losers or unknown like we want yeah. genetic diversity as a whole and looking for winners. Yeah, you have you have the Michael Jordan of the of the coral for <laughs> for a few years, but then the landscape might change a little bit, and uh, now they're playing football. <laughs> with I don't I I don't know much about sports, and probably shouldn't make sports metaphors. <laughs> but but the idea is, is is what works really well for a little while. I mean, it, it's tempting to get very excited mm -hmm. uh, about it, but. But that that can change in a hurry as mm -hmm. as well, and and something that maybe does like mediocre 
uh, this year might be the MVP mm. five years from now. So we essentially want to look for those winners, those super corals, as they've been termed. Um, but yeah, we want they to... they were they have been termed super corals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's. A... I, I said that like as a joke <laughs> earlier, but that's literally. That's I mean, what there's science some scientists that refer to them as super corals, um, right? And I mean, there's very marketable basis coral for, for for resilience in that way, right? Um, so that's the the main problem at the get go is that people have failed to raise many of the important coral species from recruit to juvenile colony. That is the biggest bottleneck right now working with um, the sexual reproduction is that they can't get survival. Whether they put it in the field, like they put it on the reef right away after it settles, uh, like you're putting basically hundreds or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, depending on species, of new recruits in the field. And you would think that a lot of them would survive. The problem is it's not the case in a lot of the Caribbean and certainly in Florida. Um, you just get high, high mortality. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for when you're trying to raise them on land so you can kind of give them a leg up before you put them out in the field. You get very, very high mortality rates. And like up until now, it hasn't really been done with consistency and in high number um, and w- in repetition, um, so that's kind of the other the other thing that we we really wanted to invest in is resilience through building um, genetic diversity, and I mean it can be targeted with the boulder corals. Like there's um, there's strains or genetic individuals that do better with the boulder corals, but I think that the the first candidate for working with these guys um the 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 sexual reproduction are the species that are less resilient so this the branching corals so you're you're able to build resilience in that less resilient organism um through looking for these these strains that do better or um just planting mass diversity um, it's also something to be said about, again, giving them a nursery phase that allows them to overcome some of these drastic bottlenecks that they experience as, um, as early recruits. So all that being said and done is that what I'm really excited about is that we've been able to do that. Um, we've been able to do do that on a repetitive basis so we're working with many different species but two of the species that are really important uh, to reef construction are acropora palmata which is the alcorn coral it's a branching coral and uh, orbicella favulata so we've been able to raise them in high numbers um, from year to year to a, like two juvenile colonies. Um, so we'll get hundreds to thousands each year. We've been able to do that repetitively so that it's become almost a production process. And that's what you need for large scale restoration. It doesn't help to have it done once or twice. Like, yes, you've demonstrated it, but it needs to be accessible to, um, certainly you. Like you need to be able to repeat it. 
but you also need to be able to transfer it to other institutions, other areas in the world, because mm-hmm. this, this is a major thing that's lacking in a lot of restoration work and is a source of a lot of criticism. Mm. Um, so we have developed techniques that will work between year um, with different species and we will able or able to get high numbers through from that that early very sensitive recruit stage to a juvenile colony and what we aim for is maybe a year of grow out so that we have something maybe the size of a half dollar that that we can then use for restoration and that's that's the question that I'll answer in to come is that you want to be able to utilize that most effectively. But, um, yeah, I think I've said everything that like, so it's a big game changer mm-hmm. to add sexual, um, sexual reproduction to as a tool in the toolkit for active coral restoration. Right. Well, this is, uh, you know, I've, I can, uh, I can be a bit, I can be quite the pessimist and, and, um, uh, think everything's doom and gloom sometimes but one of one of the uh i I mean it sounds like there's a lot of hope in what you're doing and this is uh humans are are kind of just starting to understand more about the ocean we kind of have land a little further along and figure it out because it's it's a little easier to examine i mean we've been doing fish hatcheries and whatnot for a while but but when you're you know, like you said it's a it's a little bit like witchcraft still but you're going out into the into the ocean and you're, you're literally going out into this ocean of variables there is so much going on out there so much for us to learn and understand but as as something like like uh uh, like these, um, you know, her- horrific issues that are coming up, but that are frightening with what's happening with much of the coral on Earth right now with uh, with climate change. Um, it, it's also uh, some of these problems might end up being opportunities if enough if enough resources and if uh, if enough uh, knowledge and willpower is put into uh, correcting this and creating. We might be able to create more and better coral in the future there uh, there might be a future where corals more abundant than it's ever been and and i mean is there is there a thing where uh where there's too much coral? i mean we're certainly far from that could there ever be a scenario where there's just you did too good of a job there's just too much coral now but I mean, potentially, but it's not likely. So <laughs> We're very far from having to worry about that problem. So one of the things that I want to emphasize is that this is not a fix-all to, right. to climate change. Like, right. This is basically a stopgap measure. Right. Um, we need to address climate change. We need to get our, uh, our footprint under control mm-hmm. because temperatures are just going to go up. And even with this work... It's certainly perceivable that thresholds will go higher than even this work can handle. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that this is the solution. It's a tool in addressing the problem. Yeah. Um, 
So. <laughs> Back to reality. I thought I a little yeah. bit of hope. Just, just for kicks. I was like, you know, I'll throw some hope out there for a chance. Well, we, it, once in a while, I'm like, eh, you know, I haven't sprinkled a little hope on the old <laughs> podcast in 10 episodes or so. Let's, <laughs> let's see how it does. <laughs> Well, Boom, just yeah. squashes it into the <laughs> well, ground. Well, I don't mean to squash it. There no, is good reason to be super hopeful. Um, and what we're doing? Uh, now- I'm, I'm. Ha- I mean, everyone needs to hear and hear over and over again that climate change is a real issue that's happening exceptionally fast, way, way faster than has ever happened in human history outside of, say, a meteor or something like that. And this is, we are not prepared, and and the best we're hoping for is stop gaps right now so we all need to work together and certainly on large scale public policies if there are people out there saying that climate change is not a real thing uh they are absolutely wrong they are against all of the scientific community do not listen to those people they are lying to you they are manipulating you so uh so it is it is absolutely imperative that people know about that with that being said i do think that there's going to be a lot of uh opportunities and um and and like you said there's uh, uh, the the coral uh when it when it benefits uh an area of uh, like Key West and local tourism and whatnot and people see the economics of it clearly then they they tend to understand um the importance of of some of this and i think it's just uh it's, it's some of it's just a matter of of people becoming a little more mm-hmm. more mindful and understanding how understanding the long run a little bit because this is all uh you know it's it's uh climate change affects your pocketbook um it even if even if you don't notice it this year yeah. it's you won't have much of a pocketbook to look at if there's not something done about it mm-hmm. um yeah so uh this work has been groundbreaking and game changing and really we've become known for this type of work um I've never really imagined that I would be known worldwide for this type of stuff, but word is starting to spread that there's there's solutions other than just branching corals or just not caring if reef dies. Reefs die. So I guess to kind of talk about like what this looks like in real world um a, a real world sense is that like so far we've just talked about generating material for restoration. So now we want to, we want to do something with that. And mm-hmm. that's the problem is that generating material and actually planting coral on reefs are two separate problems. And you have to picture them that way. Um, it's not just a lock. If you secured the, the quantity and production aspect of things, the whole nother side of things like, that actually go into having success in planting corals large scale. Um, so, I mean, again, ecological engineering, we will have a paper out discussing our first planting with microfragments um, in very near future. Well, that's terrific. Well, 
Um, we absolutely uh, appreciate all that you're doing, Christopher. And well, so I, I guess I want to wrap it up by yeah, saying yeah. that, like, this kind, this process has come full circle mm-hmm. in that, like, we started with microfragmentation and trying to build scale in massive corals um, and build them in large quantities. Um, then we moved on to another problem we saw with the sexual reproduction of new genotypes in branching and massive corals. Once you do that, you still have the problem of you may produce a hundred or a thousand or two thousand or tens of thousands of new genotypes, but after a year, that individual is still very small, like maybe the size of a half dollar. Yeah. So what happens is if you're going to use that for restoration, it's either you plant that individual out on a reef and hope it survives as the sole representative of that new genotype, or you mass proliferate that so that you can again address the scale problem. So, so once we have that yearling material, we can then microfragment and produce thousands of individuals from a very small amount of material in as little as two years. So it's a game changer for adding new genotypes for, to restoration. Um, so we're addressing resilience through asexual reproduction and sexual reproduction. And again, equipping our toolkit to, to address multifaceted coral restoration work. So we'll take that production, whether we received it from sexual or asexual means, and plant them on reefs. We can plant microfragments. Um, we can plant microfragments in arrays, basically in combination with each other. If you plant the same genotype in a certain area, they'll actually each grow individually, each one of those microfragments. But once they reach the fragment of that same genotype, they'll merge together, forming a much larger colony in a much faster faster period of time so that has huge implications for how how this goes from just being a band-aid approach of just kind of replacing all the corals that died to actually fixing ecosystem function because reproduction is based on size a lot of times most of the research out there says that the coral colonies need to reach a critical size before they start reproducing. If you can get that coral colony to size faster, it stands to reason, and it's been demonstrated in a couple circles, that they will reproduce much faster. So whereas it might take an individual 10 to 15 years to get to the size of first reproduction, we have seen that with the growth rates we experience in the field with certain species might take three years. Um, so reestablishing ecosystem function is a priority, not just to plant things and have a good feeling. We want to, to try and give nature a leg up until we can perpetuate the cycle on its own. And then have a good feeling. <laughs> so, uh, so Christopher, if, if people want to uh, learn more, if they want to donate, if they want to help you and Moat save the world, what do they do? <laughs> so you can visit our, our website at moat, M-O-T-E dot org slash, re- slash research to learn more about the projects that we're doing here with Coral Restoration. Moat is actually a multifaceted marine science organization um there are 
areas where you can donate on that website. Specifically in the Keys, we have a license plate, a specialty license plate in Florida called the Protect Our Reefs license plate. And if you're a Florida resident, you can buy one of those specialty license plates and we get a portion of the proceeds. We also have basically veneer plates that you can buy as well and donate in that way. Um, and also just visit us on Summerlin Key um, and take a tour. Like we're not expecting anybody to just take our word for it. Like we have nothing to hide. Like this, this process is happening on a daily basis. It's a, and it's a long drive from Miami to Key West, and the, and the, there's it's good to take some stops along the way. And I got to tour the facility and yeah. and check out the area. You might as well stop by and break up your drive a little bit. For sure, we have guided tours that that take place at certain times of the day and certain times of the week. So they're they're scheduled into the program. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yep. And thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious people. I'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, I'm talking with educator and author Roxana Eldon. We had a fantastic conversation about her new fiction book, Adequate Yearly Progress, a novel which was influenced in part by the Here We Are podcast. Used some episodes of the Here We Are podcast. She's a regular listener and used some, uh, was influenced while building some of the characters by a few of the uh, of the episodes. So I thought that would be neat to have her on to talk about that and her non-fiction book, See Me After Class, which is a funny, honest, practical guide with hundreds of tales and tips from experienced teachers around the country, meant to be like more of a... Uh, the stuff that traditional teaching training doesn't teach you about the realities of teaching. We have a fantastic, interesting episode for you there and also don't forget that the east coast premiere of psychonautics my new documentary is uh coming out east coast the only two chances to see it on the big screen on the east coast october 4th and 6th as screening at the psychedelic film and music festival go to shanemoss.com to learn more there and I think I'm going to put a good trip on the back burner for a while as uh, I have some things in development and, and I'm, I'm focusing on stand-up science for a while. So uh, there's only three more chances to see a good trip anytime soon. Maybe ever. I imagine I'll do it more again in the future, but it's going on the back burner for a while. Uh, but I'm, I'm performing it in Chicago where I'm doing both stand-up science and a good trip on October 18th. And then I'll be performing Good Trip in Lansing, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And even if you don't live in any of those areas, guys, I implore you just to say Kalamazoo to yourself just a few times, just to brighten your day. Those those squirrely son of a guns that decided to just really go for it and name their city Kalamazoo. Oh, such a fun city to say. So... I'll be in Kalamazoo, October 20th, Lansing, Michigan, the night before that. Last few times of a good trip. Get it well, the getting's good. And please support Stand Up Science. Once again, I want to talk so much to you guys about this uh, new project of mine. But for now, I'll just say it's everything that I've been 
building towards not everything, but it's a large part of the bigger picture that I've been building towards for some time now. And uh, you've, you've noticed the Here We Are podcast probably getting a little better lately. It's because I'm taking care of myself. I'm in better shape. I'm I'm uh, you know meditating regularly. I'm doing all the things right now, and I have been for some time. And uh, just feeling uh, as good as I've ever felt, and and just have that much more experience uh, as as a host and. Everything else is kind of just clicking into place. My stand-up has been clicking, clicking into place, and so it's just time. It's uh, this isn't just uh, a month or two. I wanted to wait until to make sure that it wasn't just a phase. It was summer or whatever else. But I've also had some bad news happen here and there lately. That's been a good test, and I've had I've had some uh, I've had my resilience tested a few times, and uh, seems sturdy. The old Shane Moss character seems nice and sturdy and dependable at the moment and ready to launch off at, for stand-up science. So I hope you guys support the show, Hope support this, uh, this stable, productive, creative version of me, and spread the word for Madison, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Chicago, Portland, probably adding some Washington and other Oregon dates very soon possibly even by the time you're hearing this. So please go to shanemoss.com and go to show dates to find out more. Music this week by Sam Goodwill. Special thanks to Jimmy Fro with the Jimmy Fro podcast for doing such a wonderful sound mixing job and editing job on this podcast and for introducing me to all sorts of cool indie music on his podcast, the Jimmy Fro podcast. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.